It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. Something to your own head, beat it up, and I've seen got no seats. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, the system of a gang, the government for hire in a combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury's beating down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. That's right, the dark heart of the city. Actually, the dark heart of the mountains is where we are right now in beautiful Gatlinburg, Tennessee. This is Doom. And Bloom. (laughs) Welcome to the Survival Medicine Hour. That's right, a lifetime of liberty in a lonely world. Yes, but is there any justice? Oh, is there any justice? A um, something. What starts with J? Well, I'll never. Have, I have to figure that out. To rhyme with it? Yes. Hmm. I don't know. Custis. <laughs> mustis. You a, mustis do this show. Right. There would be no justice unless you mustis do the show. Hey, I'm Joe Walton, MD, also known as Doctor Bones of DoomandBloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts <clears throat> on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton. I am a nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. Oh, don't sell yourself short. You are an advanced registered nurse yeah, practitioner. Yeah, that's a mouthful. ARNP. <laughs> that's right. And together we are the dynamic duo. We are the prodigious pair, a courageous couple. And we're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Can I say we're the pissed off patrons, too? Oh, we're always <laughs> pissed off. Always. No, I'm not. <laughs> I just have... Crappy neighbors right now. Yeah, well, friends oh and the na- friends gosh. and neighbors, even you neighbors. Have you been injured in an accident with an egregious eagle? Well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only. And do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists, nor is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Mills and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, yes. Modern medicine is awesome in normal times. But are these normal times? I don't know. Look at the news. I don't think so, People are crazy. That's right. (laughs) If you read the news, you'll understand just what we're saying. We might be circling the drain. We might be going to heck in a handbasket. 
That might leave you, citizen, as the guy who has to keep their family healthy when things go south. You might be the highest medical asset left in times of trouble, so show the world that you've got more sense than a sack full of salamanders and get some training, learn a little, and you know what, while you're at it, how about some medical supplies, a quality medical kit to go along with all that knowledge, and what better place to get it than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never-equaled kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'd face in any disaster. You'll make your workplace, your school, your church safer. And they're designed by a real-life medical doctor and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff. And you'll agree, our kits are the ones you should have in your medical storage. But don't take our word for it. Check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net. And see what folks just like you have to say about our medical kits and service. And on top of all that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings account. Just let us know you need the paperwork. Hey, we learn as much from you guys as you do from us. So spare a smidgen of smartness. Oh, I like that one. For us and connect with good old Dr. Bones and the lovely Nurse Amy. Here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. <laughs> yes. I, you know what? We have the bird in another room, and I can still hear the bird giggling. <laughs> giggling bird. The bird is laughing. Well, birds cackle, don't they? They don't giggle. They're, the bird does whatever I do. <laughs> if I cackle, then it's ca- cackling. <laughs> if I laugh, the bird is laughing. There you go. Anyway, you can reach us or contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and... Nurse Amy, check out our Facebook page. You can follow that. It's called Doom and Bloom. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy. That's right. And don't forget our other podcast, American Survival Radio, now broadcast from KPJC, Relevant News Talk Radio out of Salem, Oregon, KRV, the voice of Lubbock, Texas, Fairbanks, Alaska's KFAR. K-I-M-B, K-M-E-T, W-N-A-E, and gosh, all sorts of different places, all sorts of awesome land-based radio stations in the U.S. of A. Don't forget about this show on KYAH Radio in Utah, which carries our podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour. Thank you. Well, I wanted to just mention and first... Also- Prepper Broadcasting Network. That's right. Another and great internet that's right. radio networks. You're absolutely right. Now, I just want to let you guys know that our... Book is coming out. It is called Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and we think our subtitle is going to be Wait, where the did layman's we write that down? the layman's guide to the use of available antibiotics in austere settings. So now, keywords, folks. Right, it, available. Right. In other words, antibiotics that you can get your hands on if you absolutely needed to. Layman's people who are not medical. Professionals, if you are, this is probably a little below your pay grade. Right. And, and certainly... And austere, austere is the other right. keyword. And everybody knows that we write about situations where there is not a modern medical system that exists. And so all three of those things will tell you what to do with some of those antibiotics that you can get in the form of fish antibiotics and other veterinary equivalents. In times of trouble, you know that infection is going to take away... A lot of survivors in times of trouble, and what we want to do is we want to prevent those avoidable deaths 
that would occur in that type of situation. So keep an eye out for it. We're expecting it out sometime next month, probably late next month. But we'll, I'd say around Thanksgiving. Well, we'll see. Yes, Thanksgiving sounds because our good. formatter had to go on vacation, That's which right. I I oh. totally understand. Listen, sometimes you just got to get away from it all. <laughs> there you go. But I think you I think you like the book if you like our other uh, stuff, our videos, our podcasts, and our articles. Well, you're definitely going to like this book, and it might be something. It, certainly, you won't find anything else like it. No, on the market. It's today. completely unique. Now, tell us a little bit about. Me? Your okay. neighbor problems. Tell us about oh. last night's neighbor oh. problems. We're hearing our house in Gatlinburg, oh. which is on the mountain, and there are a lot of houses right nearby. And how about the neighbor last night? Well, we have bears, and I'm sure you guys, if you've listened to the podcast before, when we come up here, we talk about how the bears know how to open doors. Well, I have a sign. Car doors. Yeah. Well... I don't know. Maybe they can't open front doors. Well. I have not checked that because we always lock our front door. Yes. Lock your front door and lock your car door. But you, I have to say, now that you mention that, they're pretty coordinated about opening the car doors, which right. is kind of difficult. If you have a certain kind of handle, they might be able to open front doors. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, anyway, we are discussing a car door that happened to have gotten open. And we're in our house with our car doors locked, and we hear gunfire. (laughs) Now, folks, we're on the side of a mountain. There's a house, mm, how many feet? 40 feet? Mm -hmm. Yes. 40 feet on one side, 40 feet on the other side. Across the street, you go up a driveway, pretty much straight up. And there's three houses. One of those mountains. Right up there. We're a bunch of mountain view chalets. Is that yes. the best way to put it? Exactly. So nothing's far away. I mean, there's six houses within, you know, a very short distance. So I hear gunfire. Um, not supposed to hear gunfire in a neighborhood like this. I'm not out in the middle of nowheresville where people can just hunt and shoot, whatever. I don't care. Whatever. That's your property. Do whatever you want. But this is a renter. This is not the owner's. So I peek out, of course. I don't cower in the corner of our house because that's not me. <laughs> hey, what are you doing? I said. There's a bear. I said, well, you're not supposed to shoot at the bear. That's not legal. We're trying to get in my car. Mumbled something <laughs> like that. I said, you're still not supposed to shoot your gun. And he mumbled something else. I just shut the door. So I called the police. Now, the reason I called the police, if I would have known the person, known that they were sane, known that they were not alcoholics, that they didn't have dementia or other mental problems, I probably would have said, oh, well, you know, just old Bob, he, he does that, and I know he's not harmful. I don't know who these people are. I don't know if they're crazy. I don't know who they're going to shoot at next. What if we go out to our car to get something and they think that's a bear and they start shooting over here? You're just really not supposed to shoot in a neighborhood with houses basically on top of each other. It's inappropriate. Well, on top of that, what's the likelihood that they would have taken this big, big bear and shot it with their handgun in such a fashion that they drop it instantly? It's much more likely that if they hit it, which apparently they didn't even do that, that if they hit it, that it would be a wounded bear. And now you have a neighborhood 
With a wounded bear. With a wounded 400-pound bear. Very angry. Very angry, in pain, and just roaming, roaming around. People walk their dogs all over the place. There are kids that walk up and down the street. This is not a deserted area. There are people, especially now, with the colors changing, there are people all over. Renters are coming and going all, all day. So anyway, that was not fun. So now I have to worry about the crazy next door neighbor. Well, we did and now, call the constables, yes. and they took away the gentleman's gun. And I told him I wasn't mad at the guy. Just I don't know who he is. You start shooting a gun, and you're a few feet away from me. I don't know who you are. Use your judgment. I don't know judgment. what you're doing. You shouldn't be shooting a gun. That's right. If you Use can stay judgment. safely in your house with the door shut, you have no purpose to open a door and go out into the street and start shooting your gun. It's just, you're not unsafe. If you're in an unsafe situation, by means, do what you have to do. Anyway. Well, so then, now I have a next-door neighbor on the other side who actually owns a house who we've been angry with for a year. A year. Because last October, we came. About two years ago, this guy bought the house next to us and asked us if he could cut down some of our very beautiful favorite trees that separated our property with his they were on our property hence why he asked us if he could cut them down because they blocked the view they blocked his view which we understood and we were very neighborly what i should have done what i should have done is tell him i think we did tell him to just cut the top top, off right we told him to just so we cut him all the way down to the ground just chopped them down which i've never said anything that's been searing inside of me for two years now, maybe more, three. Right. Anyway, so apparently he showed up to his house yesterday or last night. And this morning he gets out his chainsaw. So now he's going to cut the remaining two or three trees that are on our property that he's not happy with. So he's got the chainsaw and I have to scream at him to shut the chainsaw off. And not cut the trees down that are on my property. And he was none too happy about that. And I also yelled at him about the one tree that I asked him not to cut down. That last October I discovered he had been chipping away at the stripped, bark. He stripped the bark Stripping all the way at the bottom. Killed the tree. Which kills the tree. Right. I don't know how long he's been doing that. But I noticed that last October I said, wow, why are these leaves dead and all the other leaves around our property, the colors are changing. Just, just changing. Yeah. So we walked down there, and we discovered what had been happening. And you could see this had been happening for a while. Probably every time he came, he chipped a little more off the side of the base of the tree. So I yelled at him also about that today because I haven't seen him. That's been simmering inside of me. You know, that you killed my... Oh, I didn't... Yes, you did do it. There's nobody else who gave... A hoot, or that tree was in their way, except for you. I will never believe that you didn't do it. I know you did it. So, anyway, I'm in a fight with him now. So, I've got a crazy shooting old man next to us, and then an angry guy on the other side who's belligerent with a chainsaw. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, honey. Maybe we should just sell this house and leave. Well, what we need what we need to do is get some acreage so oh if somebody gosh. decides to to take a saw to the tree Chop on the, the very edge of our there. property 
you know, right at the very edge. Uh, you know, we might not even see it because we got uh, some acreage. So I it's time for us to get that acreage. That tree that's dead, we've been watching it for 21 years, grow. <clears throat> 21 yep. years. Yep. That we we have been here. watching that tree mm-hmm. turn colors. And a lot and of now, our, a lot of the folks that rent our property, it. too. That's right. So, well, the bottom line is it's time for us to get some acreage. If you guys know <sighs> acreage, uh, some, about some acreage in the western North Carolina, eastern Tennessee area. I need to have a zen, yes. zen moment. Amy has to have a zen moment. Well, in any case, <sighs> since we're in Gatlinburg, we... Do our our Zen moments are oftentimes on the trail when we do a lot of hiking, and anyone who's done any hiking like we have, or or has ever bought the wrong pair of shoes, has certainly experienced things like blisters. Now, for a relatively small tissue injury, a, a blister can certainly cause more of its more than its share of problems. More than one hike has come to a screeching halt because the terrain was a little more rugged than the footwear can handle. And so never underestimate the importance of a properly fitted pair of shoes. And remember, your shoe size actually changes as you age. It changes during and after a pregnancy, most times permanently. And even, did that happen to you? I'm not listening. (laughs) (laughs) Stop simmering and start listening. I was just thinking about how I told him instead of cutting down trees, it would have been better even now to just have them topped off and he said he is too old to do that i said no you don't do it yourself you pay somebody 20 bucks to do it and i think he said he couldn't afford that or something but right, i'm thinking well, you got a vacation home that you're renting out right. every week i think you can't afford 20 bucks in any case what did you want me to i was say? wondering did your sh- did your feet grow or shrink or do anything weird was, during after pregnancy during pregnancy oh my pregnancy? gosh Yes, I had size 8 shoes. Not a lot, but you know, a normal amount. Normal I went size. to an 8 and a half. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the pregnancy, I was wearing a 9 to a 9 and a half. And when I'm finished now, all of my shoes are either 9 and a half or 10. Wow. Every single pair that you see. Yes, folks, I married Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's possible that happened over the two pregnancies that I ended up at the end with the nine and a half to ten. So I think that it probably went up a good half to almost a full size in one and then the same thing the next. But yeah, I wore nine and a half or tens. Crazy. I started with an eight. Wow. Well, I'll tell you what, shoe size even changes temporarily during the course of a day. That's why you should oh, always. Oh, lovely! Right, that's, that's why you should always try on just temporarily though. Should always try on new shoes after a day of walking when your feet are a little bit swollen, because sure enough, if you don't, then as your feet swell during the day in your new shoes, then you may have a lot of discomfort. So you're saying that I need to buy some Elevens for the end of the day. <laughs> well, the I'd have to, I don't know about that size ten. I think I'm gonna have to measure. Oh your feet. my goodness. Well, most of us have one foot that's larger than the other also, so always make sure that your boots fit both feet, especially the larger one. Don't just put on one boot and say, oh, I'll take these. You've got to be comfortable, and each step has to be comfortable. Okay, so the deal is the ball of your foot, the part just under before the toes, should fit the widest part of the shoe without having any pressure. That's obviously number one, and that's what actually most people, when they realize shoes are too small for them that's what they usually feel 
They're always should be about a we'll half inch. We'll call that the ouch factor. <laughs> there you go. That's a good. That's you good. start having the ouch factor. A good name for it. <laughs> there should be about a half an inch or so from the end of your boots to the end of your sh- uh, end of your toes, rather, to the end of your boots. So that's something that for you your need socks, little, right? You need and to have a little space. And for the additional swelling at the end of the day. There you go. See, I am listening. You are listening now. <laughs> <laughs> Occasionally, I'm dripping off, uh, uh, drifting off into angry land, but mm-hmm. I come back to happy land. There you go. I, I try not to spend too much time over there. It's and I not fun. It. it is not fun. Now, the upper part of the shoe should be flexible enough to not cause any discomfort on your instep. That's the part of the person's foot between the ball of the foot and the ankle mm-hmm. uh, where your arch is. And so it's very, very important that that area is nice and comfortable flexible enough to mm-hmm. to have a little give and your heel should not slip up and down when you walk in your potential new pair of shoes so those are some very important things especially if you're going to be uh, giving these shoes a, a lot of punishment on the trail you need to be able to say that all of those things i just mentioned are actually pretty comfortable and don't feel a lot of pressure by the way speaking of punishment Make sure your soles are a thick Vibram, V-I-B-R-A-M, or other sturdy material. That's important. If you're really going to be on the trail, you might consider high top boots. These will help prevent ankle sprains by giving more support, and they'll protect against that rare, I guess, snake bite that could possibly occur. Hopefully rare. That's right. Now, don't buy shoes that are that are too tight and expect them to stretch. You know, sometimes you'll see shoes that, oh, well, these look really great on me. They're a little tight, but they're going to stretch as I wear them. And that doesn't mean they won't stretch, but you're going to go through a lot of discomfort to get them there. So be wise and, you know, make sure that your shoes fit to begin with. Many buy uh, shoes online. Remember, uh, this is something that is, of course, almost everybody is buying everything online these days. But you really should first walk physically walk in the shoes that you're considering getting for a while i think at least 15 minutes before making a purchase if you can do that and you still feel comfortable after the 15 minutes that's a good thing now which brand is best well that depends a lot on you your feet are shaped differently than my feet and i'm my feet are shaped differently than the next guy so different brands of boots might be better for different people now heavier boots such as those that have steel toes are great if you're chopping wood of course you get to keep all 10 of your toes but are surprise surprise very very heavy remember an extra pound of weight in your boot is like an extra five pounds of weight on your back so get soft flexible uppers that's going to help especially uh uh in terms of limiting the amount of weight that you're going to have to carry in your feet and in wet climates consider waterproof materials like Gore-Tex like the Gore-Tex that they use in ski clothes that's a good investment of course unless you can count shoemaker as one of your survival skills buy a spare pair or two before a disaster happens wear them a few times each as well so to break them in so they're comfortable too now another factor in keeping your feet healthy is your socks Many people hike in the same pair of socks all day, even in the heat of summer, but sweaty feet are unhappy feet. and Wetness increases friction and it gives you blisters. So on the trail, it's important to change wet socks, have replacement socks in your backpack. That's very important. For additional protection, consider the use of a lighter, maybe second pair of socks. Sometimes they call them sock liners under the thicker hiking socks that you use. Uh, foot powders like Gold Bond or even cornstarch uh, may help keep your feet dry. 
No matter what, though, there's always a chance that a long, arduous hike is going to cause blisters. If you're walking over roots on a slope, well, that's a lot different than traveling on a paved park trail. It's important to recognize that you're having problems early before they become real problems. Now, if a blister's just starting, it'll look like a tender red area. We call that the hot spot when that's where the friction is worse. You want to cover this area with moleskins, Spenco second skin, uh, S-P-E-N, S-P-E-N-C-O, second skin, or other product like that before it gets worse. These items are inexpensive, but if you don't have any on hand, you can always make use of gauze or a Band-Aid or even duct tape can be used to prevent uh, blisters. The important thing here is to add padding to prevent further friction. Blisters happen, however, and most people are eager to pop them right away because they are annoying, and this shouldn't be should not be done, I think, unless you absolutely have to. Certainly not with small blisters. It could lead to infection, and if you're certainly in the backcountry that are not going to be back in town anytime soon or something has happened and you're never going to be back in town, well, the truth is that you should probably consider that skin over a blister might be able to serve almost as a dressing. I mean, if, if it's intact. Large blisters, well, those are different because they're going to pop easily anyhow. And so if you are going to pop a blister, follow this process. I, I, you, want, you want to clean the area with disinfectant. Then alcohol or iodine is especially useful. Then you want to take a needle and you want to sterilize that with alcohol or heat it until it's red hot. Then you want to pierce the blister, but where? Pierce the side of the blister near the base. That's going to allow the fluid to drain. It'll ease some of the discomfort from the pressure of the fluid and allow healing to begin. Now, any loose skin that are that's that's on top of the blister, the blister roof, I guess, as you can call it, that should lay on there to prevent to protect the raw area. You want to cover the blister to uh, have some protection. You might need to apply some antibiotic cream. Might be a good idea if you happen to have it. Right. You have to remember that it's possible that you're treating this blister mid-hike. Yes. Or mid-walk. Mm-hmm. And so covering it, and you're going about, about to talk about moleskin too, is going to help you be able to get back to where you need to be. Absolutely which right. Which is, you know, unless you plan on getting uh, somehow some splints or <laughs> a walker or a wheelchair you know? exactly <laughs> you're gonna have a hard time getting back without having to put some pressure on it so you need to have some type of protection you want to cut a hole in the middle of let's say some uh, small skin or some second skin and you want that to be a little bigger than the uh, blister itself you want to make sure that you have an, an opening in the middle of the moleskin and then cover that with a gauze pad or another bandage. If you do that and rest a little bit, then you're probably going to be fine. Of course, if you absolutely have to keep walking, make sure that your bandages stop the friction to the area. Remember that bandages frequently come off. so Or start moving. Or start so moving, So you want to make right? sure it's secured enough to where it's not moving back and forth over this poor area that either has a blister or is about to become a blister. There you go. So check it from time to time. Make sure that your bandages are on and that you're, they're thick enough to and provide some You'll be able to padding. feel it, too. That's right. You feel a little extra friction going on. Just stop, redo it, and keep going. 
Exactly. You should change the bandage frequently to maintain cleanliness because it yep. could get infected there. Absolutely. Uh, if a blister is continuously exposed to friction, there's a chance it can turn into a foot ulcer. That's a pretty rare thing. It's a shallow <clears throat> red crater that involves only surface skin, or it can actually get very deep. It can involve tendons and other deep structures. This is something that occurs more commonly in diabetics uh, because they're more susceptible to foot problems due to poor circulation, nerve and, damage. Right, and like people that. with immune disorders, issues. right? If you take longer to heal cuts and lacerations, anything that happens to you, it seems to just take you a little bit longer to heal. Uh, these are things you need to worry about when you have any kind of issue, like a blister, that it's just going to take a lot longer to heal. Or that because it does take so long to heal that you, and you keep walking, it's going to get worse. Right, That's exactly. That's the scary thing. Now, there are home remedies for blisters <clears throat> that, that are supposed to heed uh, speed healing yes. and prevent infection. And they include things like cold salt water compresses, um, tannic acid solutions. Uh, some Which of you these, can make with teas. Right, exactly. Oils like uh, vitamin E oil, garlic oil, tea tree oil, lavender oil. Those are useful. Some zinc oxide ointment, they use that for sunburn, and that's also very good for um, blisters. Witch hazel is also very good, and some people even use aloe vera. Anything that's is, a butt cream, too. There you go. <laughs> and butt cream. There's a name for that. What's that is called? It, is it just called Preparation butt? H? No. 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 <laughs> uh, Desidin. Yep, de something like Desidin. For anything, diaper rash. Anything that's made for diaper rash would, would help also. Well, there you go. Anything that helps heal skin is important. Now, speaking of skin, blisters aren't the only problem. Being out in the woods or working with wood not uncommonly leaves a person with a little wood in their hands or somewhere else a splinter Ow, in the form of a splinter yeah, you might... oh wait one more thing did you mention the youtube video we have of nope, when I we did. were up here in gatlinburg oh yeah a few and years you ago. had a blister i had a blister and i took care of it you were so wonderful that's on the youtube and, channel and i can and walk and today i can walk today you can walk that's right not yesterday but just today <laughs> no i'm just kidding well blisters aren't the only <clears> problem you have to worry about splinters too you might see a splinter easily if it's big enough, but a magnifying glass is a good thing to have with you to visualize it. A number of our kids carry magnifying glasses, I think, right? Big giant ones The big now. ones? Yeah, well, there you go. Well, here... Those suckers are like five <laughs> inches wide. Well, here's the best <laughs> Made way... Made of glass. Yes, very good. Now, sometimes you can mm -hmm. actually sort of work that splinter out yourself simply with your fingernail or sometimes it works its way out just generally your body recognizes it as a foreign object mm -hmm. and, uh, but sometimes your body recognizing it as a foreign object will actually cover it up and actually close the skin over it and make a sort of little wall around it and that's yes the skin hardens around it exactly right now the thing and then you're not sure if you have a splinter because you feel this hard skin and you say well this is unusual what's in there so what's the deal then right you gotta open it up yes to see what's inside of there absolutely which is so much fun well here's some of the ways that you can get rid of a splinter I mean, what i want you to do of course first with any of these methods is you want to wash the affected area before you begin removing a splinter you wash your your hands you're going to wash the skin around where the splinter is and and this <clears throat> you could just use warm water and soap of course you can use hand sanitizers too 
that this will minimize the risk of spreading bacteria that can cause infections. You want to have a good pair of tweezers. I know you have those in a lot of your yes, kits. Good ones. Uh, and the scalpels, which also you also have. Maybe a number 11 scalpel would be a, a good shapes uh, blade for, for this type of work. Uh, if the skin is grown over the foreign object, you actually have to break the skin with a scalpel or in some fashion so that you can get to where the actual splinter is. You want to sterilize your tweezers with alcohol if you can. Before you use your tweezers, make sure that uh, you have them disinfected. So they, rubbing alcohol will do, uh, making them white hot with a heat so or red hot with a heat source, uh, boiling them. That These are ways that you can certainly uh, sterilize a set of tweezers. You want to use your magnifying glass, get some good lighting, and see if you have to break the skin. If you want to break the skin, you want to cut superficially, just expose enough to get the tip of the wood fragment squeezing behind or under the splinter sometimes makes it more accessible. Then you take your tweezers, grasp the end of the splinter, pull it out along the angle that it entered the skin. That's the most important thing. Don't fight it. If you're, if you're doing that in any other way, you are fighting that splinter and it's not going to come out at least in one piece. Don't forget to wash the area thoroughly before and after the procedure. Now, it's unlikely that a major infection would occur from simply having a splinter, but there are some, if they're under there long enough and they started <laughs> off with some bacteria there, you may not start noticing redness or swelling in the area. That's going to be a issue, an issue if an infection is brewing. You might consider antibiotics in this circumstance, anything that would take care of a soft tissue infection. Amoxicillin would be useful for that. As a, as a good start, fish mox forte, things like that. Uh, and not, there are other ways. Which not are a, all explained in the new book. <laughs> that's, that's right, in Alton's Antibiotics like, and Infectious Disease. Shameless plug there. All right. Now, another way not involving a blade is to get some tape. Fragile splinters, such as those from plants or fiberglass, often respond well to removal with tape. They use many different types of tape for this. Uh, masking tape, duct tape, electrical tape. You only need a, little, a small piece. Apply the tape after washing your hands to the splinter site and press it firmly to make it stick to the splinter. Make sure you don't press the splinter deeper into your skin as you do this. And just apply pressure out and away from the entry point of the splinter and then pull off the tape. And if you're lucky, then you'll be able to get the splinter out. Mm -hmm. You can also use, and this is something that uh, I've used, I used when I was a kid, is Elmer's glue or white school glue, and apply that to the splinter. Use the glue over an area where the skin is open to remove a splinter. <clears throat> if you can, if the glue will actually connect with the splinter, allow it to dry. Make sure that it glues thick enough to fully cover the splinter, and don't use super glue. That usually will make it more difficult to get the splinter out, actually traps the splinter in your skin instead of removing it. So what you should do is go ahead and let that glue dry. The glue has to dry completely before you can remove it or it may not stick to the splinter. Leave the glue on your skin for about an hour or so. Check it now and then, make sure it's dry. And when the glue is dry, peel it away. Grasp the edge of the glue, pull it in the direction that the splinter entered your skin, slowly and evenly. As you pull it the glue over your splinter, the splinter should come out. Now, what you should do after you remove the splinter, you should gently squeeze until you see a little bit of blood. This will get some of the germs from the splinter out of your wound and then wash your hands very carefully. Now, of course, don't squeeze too hard. If the wound doesn't bleed with some gentle pressure, just leave it alone. Don't go crazy with regards to that. 
So, uh, and you might consider putting a little antibacterial ointment on it. So those are the things that will help you get rid of wood fragments, blisters, other common things that you'll have to deal with on the trail. Now, there are other things that you will deal with in natural disasters like wildfires and also in situations where you have to make your own campfires, and mm -hmm. those are burns. Many natural and man-made disasters come with a significant risk of burns, uh, earthquakes and um, hurricanes <clears throat> or flooding can cause sh uh, power shorting. Yep, and you're going to have uh, to cook your food and boil your water somehow. Right, exactly, and so there are all sorts of ways you can get burn injuries, and if you find yourself off the grid one day, you may have to figure out what to do in case you come across somebody with one with a significant burn injury. In survival, the potential of burn injuries will going to rise exponentially, that's for sure, and Remember that children are especially at risk. They're so naturally curious. Campfires, they obviously, you know kid, your kids like to look at the campfire, get very close to it. So just need to have the materials and the knowledge of how to treat burns. Any medical provider for a group or a family in times of trouble definitely needs to know that. Now, the severity of a burn depends upon the percentage of the total body surface that's involved, as well as the degree of penetration of the burnt tissue. Now, assessing the surface percentage burned is standard practice, helpful in modern medicine. It may have, I don't know, less practical benefit in austere settings where transport isn't an option, but it's still good to know the way that that is determined. The rule of nines, that was developed in the 1950s, called the rule of nines, the number nine, and uh, the doctors that developed it wanted an easy way to estimate the ratio of the area of a patient's burns to the total area of the skin. The reason why is because it made a difference in terms of what their success rate or what their survival rate is going to be. So I mentioned that it's called the rule of nines and that's because the skin on each part of the body surface area is a multiple of nine. So your arm if your entire arm was burned, that would be 9% of your total body surface area. Each of your legs is 18%, which is 9 times 2. Uh, and the front and back and the front of your torso is 18%. The back your back of your torso is 18% as well. So you see that there's a lot of nines there. The head and neck together make up another 9%, and that leaves just 1% left and that's for your genitalia. So if your genitalia is more than 1%, well, congratulations. Um, this breakdown, if you put this all into 9%, and by the way, if it's just the front of an arm or half of an arm, you could make it you know, 9 divided by 2, 4.5%, or half of your, your front of your torso instead of 18%, 9%. Basically, it makes it easy for doctors to estimate the size of a burn in relation to the entire body and determines the success rate in, ter in terms of a full recovery. The rule of nine works pretty well for adults. It does have some distortions if you use it with children because body proportions for kids are a little differently. Uh, usually the legs are a little bit less. Instead of 18%, they're about 14%. The head's a little bit bigger in a kid. So uh, that's, I think, 14% instead of 9%. Another way that you can assess the surface burn area would be checking it compared to the size of the palm. 
The skin on the palm of your hand comprises about a half of 1% of your total body surface area. For kids, it's about 1% even. And a doctor can just check the size of a patient's hand, compare it to the size of a burn. They make a quick guess about the percentages. Now, of course, these methods all have their flaws. For starters, body shapes have changed significantly since the last, oh, six years or so. People are actually heavier these days or are, are they're a I, little bit more I blame high fructose obese. corn syrup corn, yes high fructose and corn preservatives syrup. and preservatives and, and portions in restaurants being better. too big yes uh, that especially yes I can, I can vouch for that so in, indeed an obese person is going to have different proportions than a skinny person and people are actually taller now so they're actually a little more stretched out so it's it's pretty impressive there are of course different uh, computer based ways that you can do it but that obviously is not going to matter with regards to us if we're going to be involved in taking care of people in times of trouble so let's talk a little bit about the types of burns um, oh by the way another thing another reason why the percentage matters is because it determines how much body fluid you need uh, it's 160 pound patient for example with a 40% burn needs about 8 liters of fluid over the first day of treatment and for a larger person would be more, for a smaller person would be less. Less of a burn would be less than that eight liters and more of a burn would be obviously more. And also the percentage determines in normal times whether somebody really should be hospitalized or not. If you have second degree burns over about 10% of your body or third degree burns over about 1%, well, you probably need to be hospitalized, something that will not be available in times of trouble. Now, first-degree burns, most burns you're going to see are going to be due to excessive exposure to the sun if uh, you wind up having to go uh, get out of Dodge. And in most cases, these are going to be first-degree burns. And first-degree burns, only, only the superficial layer of the skin is injured. Um, so a burn like that is going to appear dry, it's going to be painful, and it's going to be a bright red. Now, to avoid sunburn, don't sunbathe. The tan is not healthy these days and avoid working in outdoors in peak sun hours, 11 a.m. to 4 or 5 p.m. Uh, wear long pants and sleeves, hats, sunglasses, spend time in the shade whenever possible. If you can't avoid extended exposure to sunlight, be certain to apply sunblock. Always apply them prior to going outside 15 minutes beforehand. You have to redo them frequently during the day, even if you don't go in the water. Sweating causes them to uh, be sort of washed off you. So you have to reapply them very frequently every couple of hours. Most people fail to put enough, by the way, on their skin, so always be generous in your application of sunblock. By the way, a sunblock and a sunscreen aren't exactly the same things. Sunblocks contain tiny particles that block and reflect UV light, whereas a sunscreen contains substances that absorb UV light, preventing it from penetrating the skin. So many commercial products contain both of these things, sunblocks and sunscreens, they need to be part of your medical storage. Always think of these things. They're uh, different types, and usually they go by SPF factor. SPF stands for Sun Protection Factor, and that system was developed in 1962 to measure the capacity of a product to protect against UV radiation. measures the length of exposure to the sun before you burn. So an SPF factor of at least 15 is recommended. It takes about 20 minutes without sunscreen for your skin to start turning red. A product that is 
SPF 15 should delay burning by a factor of 15 or turn it from 20 minutes to about five hours. Higher SPF readings give more uh, protection and are especially beneficial to those people that have fair skin. Now, besides the sun, first degree injuries will maybe related to cooking, campfires, things like that. Hand, hand protection, using hand protection will prevent many of these burns and of course careful supervision of kids around campfires and food preparation areas that would be a good idea as well. So if you have somebody who has a severe sunburn over a lot of their body they're going to be very miserable so immerse them in a cool bath or at least rule, run cool water over as much of the injury as possible. Uh, a cool moist cloth on the burn will give some relief as will anti-inflammatory medicines like ibuprofen. Now, zinc oxide, uh, aloe vera are effective natural alternatives. Then expect the discomfort to improve after maybe 24 hours or so. Oh, during that time, avoid tight clothing. Avoid tight clothing. Wear light fabrics such as cotton. Now, there's a second degree burn. That was the first degree. These are second degree burns we're talking about now. These are deeper injuries. They penetrate through the superficial epidermis of the skin and partially through the deeper layer of the skin called the dermis. Thus, they're often called partial thickness burns. Like first degree burns, second degree burns are seen to be sort of moist and sort of juicy. They may have blisters with reddened bases. Uh, the area has a tendency to sort of weep this clearish or whitish fluid. Second degree burns can cause significant swelling. So in this, this case, with second degree burns and later with third degrees, it's important to remove all rings and bracelets. Very, very important. Now to treat it a second degree burn, you wanna run cool water over the injury for about 10 to 15 minutes. Avoid ice because that's traumatizing to damaged skin. And you wanna apply moist skin dressings such as Spenco Second Skin um, or some kind of non-stick pad like Telfa pads and give oral pain relief such as ibuprofen. There are anesthetic ointments such as benzocaine, lidocaine, they come in sprays also. There's a, uh, in some of these areas where the, there's a lot of blisters, the blisters pop and have a lot of raw skin that could cause, in, uh, could be prone to infection. So you might consider using Silvadine cream, that's silver, a combination of silver and an antibiotic called sulfadiazine that helps prevent infection. Consider uh, antibiotic ointment also, that's also helpful. Uh, I would avoid lancing blisters if it's possible. Some very large blisters, you have to realize though, will break with the slightest pressure, especially if you have them on your back or somewhere that you're going to lay on when you're sleeping. So you might benefit maybe if the blister is the size of a 50 cent piece or more to, or at least a quarter size, May, should consider maybe a controlled way to drain them. And we just talked about how to drain blisters. So uh, on your feet and, and your ankles and your heels. So you, you would use the exact same, exact same methodology and that should work. And avoid removing burned skin from this area. If you try to peel off skin, like people peel off skin after a first degree burn, you wind up peeling off much thicker layer of skin and it could cause scarring and, and certainly very uncomfortable. I, can, I actually had a second degree burn when I was young and I can tell you that that was done to me. It was not a good idea. Then you always have the third degree burns. Those are terrible 
burns that penetrate the full thickness of the skin start entering deeper structures like fat, muscle, bone, stuff like that. And this type of burn has a different look to it depending on the source of heat. Electrical burns look a little different than scalds uh, with hot, hot water, boiling water, for example. And it's, uh, sometimes these burns look indented because a lot of tissue has been lost. Third degree burns rapidly cause dehydration also. Remember, you've lost your skin. And so and you're not losing you, a lot of fluids. Absolutely. And not only have you lost your skin, but if you think about um, a, a dam wall holding back water, if you remove that, it's all going to leak in. So the wall of skin that you've removed from deep inside, almost like a cork, it's like taking a cork out, all the sides are going to leak in because the vessels are not connected like tubes anymore. They've been severed, you know, maybe a couple of different places, and they're just going to leak. And so, like you said, these wounds are going to fill up with fluid rapidly and repeatedly, and depending on how much skin has been burned away and how deep, you could lose a significant amount of fluids. Absolutely. It's a big problem. Oh, absolutely. Well, third-degree burns are a big problem on so many levels yes it's really terrible at the very first if you're the first person on the scene with somebody has a third degree burn try putting some cool water on them not ice remember ice is traumatic to already damaged tissue and remove immediately any rings or jewelry because you're going to wind up seeing uh, strange swelling and all sorts of terrible things with this and you definitely don't want to have any items on somebody that are going to cause any pressure uh, the skin no longer exists in these burns, so infection, super likely, especially if the wound isn't covered. Um, there are a lot of different ways to cover wounds. Uh, you can use Silox Combat Gauze. The Silox Combat Gauze, which we've talked about as a hemostatic agent, a way to stop bleeding, it also serves as a burn dressing. You wet it, and it forms as a sort of gel-like dressing that provides a helpful barrier that will cover a wound. So that is something that is very useful to have. Silvadine cream, very helpful in preventing infection in third-degree wounds. And we have to realize the hard reality that anybody with a third-degree burn over any significant part of their body, if you have a third-degree burn over 1% of your body, you could actually find yourself very, very sick. And the scarring is going to be a major issue. If it's anywhere near a joint, you wind up having uh, a tense area there that that is just not flexible anymore we call that a contracture Uh, those are oftentimes treated with skin grafts something that you won't have the accessibility to to do and also you're going to have a number of major issues with regards to infection super pro a super big problem you have to use antibiotics most of the time these antibiotics are intravenous you you'll have oral antibiotics in the form of fish or bird antibiotics, but they may not cut it. I mean, anybody with 10% of their body burned to the level of a third degree is most probably not going to survive. And that's just one of the very sad but hard realities of the survival medic. Now, if you don't have any conventional medical resources, uh, the alternative burn treatments are going to be aloe vera for first and second degree burns. Aloe vera helps new skin cells form and speeds healing, making it an excellent option for first or second degree 
burns, just take an aloe leaf, cut it open, scoop out the gel or rub the open leaf right on the burned area and you reapply that four to six times daily and there you go. Um, many articles on natural burn remedies commonly suggest vinegar as a treatment. Vinegar works as an astringent and an antiseptic, helps to prevent infections. The best way to use vinegar on smaller sized burns is to make a compress with uh, water 50-50 with vinegar, cover the burn, and re-soak the compress whenever it feels warm. There's no limit to how many times you can apply the vinegar soaks. And you, can, you also use it in a cool bath. You can also use witch hazel as a cooling off treatment, uh, and that would be good for first degree burns. Other people have used things like elderflower, comfrey leaf, uh, black tea leaves, uh, even milk or yogurt. Are, have been found to help cool and hydrate the skin after a burn. Ripe, uh, wrap some whole milk or full fat yogurt inside gauze or cheesecloth and use it as a compress. So those are some options for you in even bad times. That's all the time we have for this week. We thank you for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton. We'll be back next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.